Chapter Sixteen of Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Quiet Hints to Growing Preachers in My Study by Charles Edward Jefferson. Chapter Sixteen, Vanity. A writer of discernment has confidently asserted that all women are vain, and men more so. If ministers are not vain, it is not because of any lack of provocation. A preacher's gifts are exercised in public places. He is preeminently a speaker, and those who speak stand, as it were, on a pedestal, the observed of all observers. No matter how modest by native disposition the clergyman may be, publicity is thrust upon him, and if he be a man of gifts, he stands perpetually in a golden shower of praise. Every gift, no matter what it is, has a coiled serpent in it, a man's deadliest danger lies ever at the center of his greatest strength. If a minister's most conspicuous gift is a rich and interpreting voice, then of his voice let him beware. Many a man has had his usefulness destroyed by the very gift which should have carried him on to power. The ability to utter sweet and thrilling tones may lead one into a habit of indulging in vocal parades full of music, but void of the gospel. It is doubtful if there is a more luxurious intoxication than that experienced by a man who, gifted with a voice of compass and passion, knows how to use it in mastering an audience. Not only do the tones soothe and entrance the hearers, they also mesmerize the speaker. Under the spell of his own utterance a man sometimes loses sight of his argument, and instead of working to lift his congregation to the level of a high ideal, he falls into playing with his voice, tripping up and down the scale to exhibit its flexibility, exploding in thunderclaps to display its volume, rolling melodious modulations out over the heads of his hearers to test and exercise the marvelous organ with which a generous God has endowed him. Every acute-eared churchgoer has heard men preach who showed by their entire vocal behavior that they cared less for their ideas than for their cadences and intonations. One cannot hear these elocutionary peacocks in their sermonic strut without wanting to cry out, Quit your fooling and come down. Sometimes the conceit is ridiculous to the verge of nauseating, for a man may be flushed over tones of which he has every reason to be ashamed. What spectacle more ludicrous and sickening than a man attempting with pompous mouthings to give expression to a message so sweet and simple as the gospel of that plain man of Galilee. If the men who indulge in starched and sonorous sounds with pompous self-complacency and amusing solemnity and fervor only knew how grotesque and silly their whole performance is, they would throw aside forever their elocutionary airs and be content to be just, sensible, plain-spoken men. All preaching rests upon a physical foundation, a commanding presence is a gift of the Almighty. Big-boned men, framed in the cyclops' size, have an immeasurable advantage over men of equal intellect but of slighter girth and stature. A handsome man in the pulpit woos and wins the eyes, and winning the eyes is almost half the contest of the heart. We are predisposed to listen to the messenger who comes to us with a majestic bearing. Some men subdue an audience before they speak a word. But this physical preeminence is not without its dangers. 
it raises expectations difficult to meet. When men look like Apollo, we anticipate something divine. When they resemble Webster, we demand that their thoughts shall match their looks. A dwarfed and bloodless sermon from a man with the mien of Jupiter is resented as an insult. A glorious body may induce a vanity in its possessor which manifests itself in the form of self-confidence. Good looks will carry a minister far, but not to the end of the day. A congregation can be impressed for a season by a massive body and by the ponderous tones of a commanding voice, but if the man in the pulpit is only a well-groomed animal repeating pious platitudes with the final tones of a son of thunder, he will early lose his church and find it hard to get another. Let all the pulpit souls beware. They are undoubtedly of the elect, but like their thin-chested, low-statured brethren, they must work to make their calling and election sure. A man of superb physique is under special obligation to fill his sermons with virility and mental fire. If because upon his body every god has set his seal to give the world assurance of a man of power, he becomes inflated and shirks the tough, hard toil which sermon creation inexorably demands. He is like the fool who built his house upon the sand. The storm is coming, and there will be a fall. Literary style is even more dangerous than good looks. The last has killed its thousands, the first its tens of thousands. Men too noble to be vain of a comely body succumb to the seductive power of success in using words. To speak and write one's language with elegance and precision is an achievement which rightly brings a sense of satisfaction. Expressing thought with distinction and grace is an art so difficult that men work for it as those who dig for hid treasures. With certain men the cultivation of style becomes a mania. For literary finish they are willing to sacrifice all the weightier matters of the law. Clearness and force and effectiveness they pass over as trifles, while they give tithes to the anise and the cumin, which grow in the garden of speech. It is not slander but truth to say that there are men now preaching the gospel to whom the ideas of their next sermon are of less moment than the literary costume in which the ideas are to be dressed. These men wear their life out on their rhetorical finery, widening the fringes and multiplying the tassels, seeking like similar pedants of an earlier day, the praise of men, and not the honor which comes from God only. But even these verbal fancy-work preachers have their admirers. No matter what a minister does, someone is sure to commend him. No other man in the town is so praised as he. He may have a host of enemies, but he is never without his friends. He may be criticized and abused, but he will also be complimented and flattered. No matter how poor his sermon, someone will find in it the word of God and tell him so. His prayer may be feeble, but some saint will thank him for it. Through the mail he receives notes of appreciation and thanksgiving. To some people he is surpassingly great. There probably never lived a preacher who was not, to at least one soul, the greatest man since Paul. All this is sweet and dangerous. To many it is fatal. Praise humbles some men, other men it spoils. They become conceited, lazy, reckless, unbearable. Puffed up by the eulogies of sentimental admirers, 
they lose the vigor of manliness and degenerate into clerical fops. Popularity is the most fearful of all tests. If any man thinks he stands, let him take heed. End of chapter 16